0: in the Bible is a righteous story. And today we've seen the movie, so to speak. Let's look at the book. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark, the second gospel, chapter 6. It's a familiar story. Many of you have heard it. It's told in the flashback because John the Baptist is already dead by the time the story gets told, but Mark goes back and tells how it all happened. So I'm going to start at verse 17. We're going to skip a little bit of the beginning part, but you have heard some of that in the skit just a moment ago. So beginning at verse 17 of chapter 6, for Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married, For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guest. The king said to the girl, "'Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you.' And he promised her with an oath, "'Whatever you ask, I will give you, up to half my kingdom.'" She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried into the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. We're going to stop there. If you read on, you'll discover that indeed she got just what she asked for. You know, as I watched that skit this morning, I'm thinking about um, there are many things that you could preach about in this piece. And I'm pretty sure that earlier generations read that scripture and then preached against dancing. I think that's where that probably came from. <clears throat> I think I've shared with you before that one of my favorite television shows is Who Do You Think You Are? How many of you have seen that? Anybody seen Who Do You Think You Are? Okay, a few of you have. And Who Do You Think, they, who do you, think you Are They trace the family trees of celebrities or athletes, people that we would have some familiarity with. And it's really quite interesting. You see the, um, the historical facts in some of these families. And many of these families, if you go back enough generations, are involved in historical things that we studied about. Battles and countries being started and wars and all kinds of stuff. One day, when I was trying to, when I sat down to watch it, I found a very interesting one on that really was about a person who doing the genealogy really helped him to understand his family better. It was an actor, it was Brian Cranston. Some of you will recognize his name. And Brian Cranston discovered in the course of the, um, ever how long it takes him to do, the, to do his genealogy he discovered that several generations of men were actors just as he was. And Brian Cranston, in his early years, lived with his mom and dad and had a very happy life. He talked about that. But about the age 12, his father deserted his family. And um, Brian Cranston said that just devastated his life at that point. Well, when he began to do his family genealogy and looking back, he discovered that not only was his father an actor, Fathers before that, his grandfathers, and other generations on back were also actors. And the interesting thing was, many of those men had also deserted their families. And when Brian Cranston saw that, he recognized a pattern that existed in his family that he had never been aware of. And even though it did not make him feel better that his father had left, it did give him a little more understanding of the family role models that had been at work in his family life. I remember at the end of the show, as he was talking with the host, they were talking about that very thing and about how the, you know, the men had left and how it impacted the families. And Brian Cranston looked at her and he said, that stops now. With me, that stops now. And I just thought how powerful that was that he had seen that pattern at work in his family and decided that he was going to change that right now. Well, in this morning's story, we could do a who do you think you are. There's a lot to figure out here. Our story is about one of the Herods, but as our pastor said several weeks ago, there's a lot of Herods out there, so trying to understand who's who makes it difficult. I'm going to show you a little bit of a family tree, and you'll be glad to know my husband told me not to spend much time on this, so I'm going to move quickly here. Uh, But I think it helps you to understand who you've got if we can kind of see that family genealogy and know who we're talking about this morning. We'll start with Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the ruler when Jesus was born, so that gets you in the time frame. Herod the Great had 10 wives and 8 children. Now, I'm not sure if that's just eight male children or eight children in all. But anyway, it listed as eight children. So with those ten wives, we're not going to talk about all of them. We're going to look at four of them this morning. So Herod the Great's four four of his wives were Mary Amney one, Mary Amney two, just like we've got multiple people named Beth or multiple people named Susan. You know, they had the same thing. Mary Amney evidently was a nice name. So two of those, Uh, Malface was a third one, and then Cleopatra. Now I included Cleopatra to help you get into the historical context because I think it's easy for us to study the Bible and just think it happened over here and who knows where the rest of the world was. But when you see that Cleopatra was part of this family, I hope that helps you to see what time period we're talking about. Well, in the next generation, these women began to have sons. And Mary Emney I had a son named Aristobulus. Mary Emney II went with Philip, thank goodness, Um, Malthas is the mother of Antipas, and Antipas is the herod of today's story. And then Cleopatra had a son also named Philip, who we've dubbed Philip number two. In the next generation, we see Herodias. So she is already part of this family. Her father is Aristobulus. She marries her uncle, Philip number one. Actually, it's her half-uncle, but still, it's her uncle. She marries him, and they have a daughter, Salome, who was the daughter who was dancing in the story at the beginning. So you see where everybody is so far. Then Herodias and Antipas kind of get their eyeballs on one another and decide they'd rather live with each other and be married to each other rather than being married to their current spouses. So Herodias divorces Philip and marries Antipas, and that's the story that John the Baptist was talking about. That's the problem in the story that, Ant- that John the Baptist was preaching about. He was telling him regularly, you can't marry. You shouldn't be married to your brother's wife. And then we see the pattern and how the pattern comes down through the family. Because Salome later goes back two generations and marries her great uncle, who was Cleopatra's son. So does that help you kind of have an idea of who's who? I'm telling you, this family is a mess. <laughs> Try to decide what to preach about. I could have picked a hundred things out of this story to preach about this morning. Because there was just so much dysfunction going on and so many things happening that was, that was difficult. But I'm going to pick two. You'll be glad to know. We're going to talk about two things. In verse 19, it says Herodias nursed a grudge. And we're going to talk about nursing a grudge this morning. And then the second thing we're going to talk about is being a role model and what kind of a role model Herodias was and what kind of a role model God calls us to be. So first, let's think about Herodias nursing a grudge. You know, a grudge often starts off as a small thing. The first thing that makes you mad is something really little. Somebody snubs you, somebody doesn't talk to you at the grocery store, somebody um, disrespects you, says something about you that you don't like, you ask them to do something and they won't do it, or they do something that you told them not to do. You know, it's usually not a great big thing. Sometimes it is, it's a pretty big thing in Herodias' life, but often in our lives, it's a small kind of thing. But in the big scheme of things, it starts off little. But what happens when it starts off little is you keep thinking about it. And you keep dwelling on that little thing and you keep getting angry about it and you let it begin to fester. And when it begins to fester, it begins to be a grudge. And that grudge grows and it gets uglier and stuff seeps out of it and it gets nasty inside of you. That's what a grudge is. A grudge makes a person ultimately become bitter and full of anger and that's not a pretty sight. That's what Herodias did. She nursed a grudge against John the Baptist. Now, I think in its very simplest form, often a grudge is really just wounded pride. Somebody has done something and it hurts our pride. We we think we deserve better than that. For Herodias, it hurt her pride that John the Baptist was preaching out against her and against the, uh, the illicit relationship that she had. She didn't like it. She wanted him to be quiet. She wanted him to quit telling her husband that he shouldn't be married to her. But instead of dealing with her own issues, she put her focus on John the Baptist. She wasn't interested in changing what she'd done. She just wanted him to be quiet. As the more time passed, she kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And John the Baptist, she just couldn't get that out of her mind. And she really became angry, looking for that opportunity to kill him, all the while nursing that grudge. And the result was, I believe, that her spirit was damaged. Her emotions were warped by bitterness and by anger as she nursed those feelings against John. Now, the story of Herodias is rather interesting, but it's, a, it's interesting in the sad and in a very negative way. But unfortunately, I believe it is a story that still plays out today. Not always with somebody getting killed at the end, though on occasion, if you watch the TV shows, you'll see that often when somebody kills somebody, it started off as a, small, as a small thing. But in many families, it's just a word that gets spoken unkindly. Or again, somebody doesn't do something, and suddenly a family is broken. I bet if you think about it in your family, you go back a generation or two, somewhere along the line, you'll find a family split caused because someone held a grudge against someone else. So often someone's holding a grudge over those past wrongs and is not willing to forgive a person and is not willing to move on. As sad as it is, it happens all the time. I'm sure you can name somebody or some family where you've seen that take place. So what's a better way to deal with those times in our lives when we get our feelings hurt or when somebody does do something that upsets us? Well, I believe, first of all, the best thing for us to do is not allow a grudge to take root. It's hard to do that, just as Michael spoke of this this morning. But the easy way to deal with a grudge is not to let it ever become a grudge in the first place. Don't allow those negative feelings that bubble up inside of you take control over you. Don't let them have that kind of power over you in your life. You know, it is hard work to be angry with somebody. And it takes a lot of energy to keep that going. Charlotte Bronte, in her book, Jane Eyre, wrote these words. Life appears to me too short to be spent in nursing animosity or registering wrongs. I think she's exactly right. Life is too short for us to waste our time being angry with somebody or, and spending all the emotional and, and physical energy it takes to keep that up. Now, sure, at times we all get our feelings hurt. I understand that. We all do. And there are certainly times for all of us that we think life is unfair. That's okay. We recognize that. But the question is, what do you do with it? It seems to me that people often go one of two ways. One way they often go that I see is that they will not deal with their feelings. They just stay mad. They don't want to deal with the issue. I know I've had people in in my office through the years, not necessarily here, but just in general with people who will say, uh, talk about some family issue and something that's happened and they'll say, I am just not ready to deal with it yet. You ever heard that? I'm just not ready to deal with that yet. What are they really saying? I am not done being angry yet. I am not ready to give that up. I am still angry and I'm gonna hang on to that and I'm gonna nurse this grudge, this anger for a little bit longer. We see it all the time. The second way some people deal with those feelings of things not being fair is they'll say they want justice. I'm not mad, I'm not mad, I just want justice to be done. Well, I think if people were as interested in justice as they act like they are, this whole world would be in a whole lot better place. I don't think they often mean they want justice when they say that. I think what they're really saying is, I want that guy to get what's coming to him. I want him to get what I think he deserves. And that's not justice, that's revenge. And revenge comes out of anger and bitterness. And I think at the core of all of it, it comes out of selfish pride. Forgiveness is the only way to truly keep a grudge from taking root in your life. And sometimes that is hard to do, but it's the only thing we can do. I want to show you a quote that I keep in my office. I came across this on the internet one day and liked it and and, uh, printed it and just taped on the bookshelf in my office. By Robert Brault, it says, life becomes easier when you learn to accept an apology you never got. Now, I printed that because I wanted you to see it, because I want you to really think about it. I'm going to say it again, because that's really deep, I think. Life becomes easier when you learn to accept an apology you never got. In other words, let it go. Don't dwell on that. Don't wait for the other person to apologize to you. You be in control of yourself. I think Paul speaks to the same thing somewhat in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. In other words, deal with it. Whatever the problem, whatever the slight, whatever it is that hurts your feelings, deal with it. Don't let it fester and become a grudge. Nursing a grudge and being unforgiving changes a person. It affects the person more, usually, that's holding the grudge than it is the other person. Now, in our story, John the Baptist got a bad outcome, no doubt. But generally, in our lives, for people who hold a grudge, it hurts them more than it hurts anyone else. The Mayo Clinic website, where you go to to find out about health things, has a, a page there that talked about the effects of holding a grudge. And we're going to show you these, just go by these just real quickly. It says, if you're unforgiving... You might bring anger and bitterness into every relationship and new experience. If you're angry and bitter and unforgiving, you may become so wrapped up in the wrong that you can't enjoy the the present. You may become depressed and anxious. If you're unforgiving, you may feel like your life has no meaning or purpose or that you're at odds with your spiritual beliefs which you are. And fifth, you may lose valuable and enriching connectedness with others if you are unforgiving. All of those things listed are negative things, and they are all things that deal with the person holding the grudge. Holding a grudge kills you from the inside out. It's deadly, but it's deadly for you if you're the one holding that grudge. The second issue I think we see in this story and we can talk about is what kind of a role model are you? Herodias was not a very good role model for her daughter, and we need to be sure that we do better in our life than she did. We saw later when Salome was a little older, she married her great-great-uncle, went back into that same pattern from the role model that she saw from her mother, Herodias. We don't have to live that way. We have a better role model. We have a role model to watch that helps us to then be a better role model. And that is the role model of Jesus. As I was thinking of this sermon, very quickly, three clear examples of a better way of dealing with conflict and uh, with not holding a grudge came to me as I thought about this. In Jesus' life, there's lots of those opportunities, but I want us to look briefly at three this morning. The first one is found in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. He's headed that last time into Jerusalem before the before the crucifixion, and he's going through the town of Samaria. And as he's going through the town, of, through the area, not the town, but the area of Samaria, a little town's coming up, and he sends some of his disciples in there to make some plans. Now, I don't know, he may have, they may have been looking for somewhere to have dinner. You know, they may have been looking for somewhere that they could stay for the night. Whatever it was, they, they were in Samaria and needed to, to stay in that little town. So the disciples went in. Pretty soon they came back and said, not going to happen. Jesus, they don't want you there. They're, they, they said for you to keep moving. They are not interested in you coming into their little town. Well, that made James and John mad, as you can imagine. You know, they're one, they're, you know, their disciple, their teacher, um, is being disrespected. They didn't like that. So they said what most of us would probably say. Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? Now, that was a plan. But that wasn't the plan that God had. That wasn't what Jesus would do. It would have been, you know, we would have understood if Jesus would have been upset with them for acting that way toward, you know, the people in that town not wanting him. But that's not how he acted. In fact, he rebuked his disciples for their harsh attitudes toward others. When Jesus was wronged by the people in the Samaritan town, instead of getting angry and holding a grudge, he just moved on. He didn't let that grudge take root in his life. And that's a better model for us. Or how about his relationship with Thomas? If you remember after Jesus was resurrected, he appeared to the disciples in a room, and Thomas wasn't there. Maybe he was out fishing. Maybe he'd gone to get food. We don't know, but he wasn't there. And by the time he got back, Jesus was gone, had moved on. So the other disciples told him, we saw the Lord. We saw Jesus. And Thomas did what? Doubted. He's like, no way. I don't believe that for a minute. I don't know what y'all are talking about. No, I don't believe that. Now, Jesus could have held a grudge against Thomas for Thomas not believing that he had the power to be resurrected, that he had the power to be there in that room. But he did not hold a grudge against Thomas. I always find it interesting that Thomas said to the disciples who were assembled, I want to see the nail scars in his hands and the hole in his side. Then I'll believe. Now by that time, Jesus was gone. But what did Jesus do for Thomas? He gave Thomas exactly what he needed. He knew what Thomas had said. And he came to Thomas and said, here, here's the nails in my hand, the hole in my side. And of course, then Thomas did believe. Jesus gave him exactly what he needed to restore the relationship. And that's how Jesus dealt with that. And then, of course, there's Peter. We mostly can remember the story of Peter. Peter was always kind of impetuous, and we remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter denied him. On a night when Jesus really could have used a friend, really could have used somebody to give him some support, Peter denied him. And yet Jesus forgave Peter for betraying him. He also sought Peter out, He came to Peter beside the lake where the men were fishing, and he talked to Peter, and he restored Peter so that Peter could be used by God. Jesus could have held a grudge. I don't think any of us would have really thought that was bad, but Jesus knew that was not what his father would have him to do. In all three of these examples, Jesus forgave them. And in the case of Peter and Thomas, he restored them. He restored them to be used by God. Jesus didn't allow a grudge to take root in his life, and he dealt with an issue when it arose. And then he forgave those who wronged him. Now that's how you keep a grudge from becoming deadly in your life. That's the role model that we need to follow. Last weekend in Charlottesville, Virginia, we saw what can happen when people nurse a grudge. We saw what could happen when people came together who had allowed anger and bitterness into their lives. They had nursed those feelings, allowing it to fester and to grow into hatred and then into violence. At the core of who they were, they have that belief that somehow they are different, they are better than those who are different from them. That anger which erupted last week came from the core of who they are from in their hearts and it's that ugliness that comes out when we allow anger and bitterness to take root inside our hearts. Those events last weekend were an ugly example of what nursing a grudge can do. Sometimes it's a little thing, but sometimes it is a big thing. Many of us in our country had hoped that we were living in a time of better racial and ethnic harmony. But we saw again last weekend that that is just not so. At least we still have a long way to go. You know, people are not born with racist views. Somebody's teaching them that. Somewhere along the way, somebody is modeling that it is okay to treat people like they are not as good as you are. Someone is modeling hatred instead of love. I think we as the church need to stand firm that we can show the world a better way. We can show the world the way that Jesus showed us. Jesus is the role model that we must follow. We have to be better role models for our children and the children around us and the people around us. We have to do better than Herodias did if we want to break that pattern. We have the opportunity to be a better role model in the world and we have to make sure that we take it. We have to teach the next generation. In fact, we have to teach this generation that all people, all people are made In the image of God. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. That means in each one of us, the image of God resides. And not just in us, but in every person we meet. That's what Jesus showed us. That's how he treated people. Jesus went against his society and hung out with the tax collectors and others who were deemed not fit for public for proper company. Jesus went against convention of that day and spoke to women, and spoke to women in public, and reached out and touched them with his healing power and defended them when they were accused. Jesus gave worth to women in a world where women were basically worthless. Jesus loved and healed the lepers and the outcast. He gave the living water to the Samaritan woman who was a person of a different race than he was. And he was able to do all of those things because Jesus saw the image of God in all people. For Jesus, there were no groups. There were no labels. There was no us versus them. There were no less thans. Everyone was equal in God. In Jesus' sight, because he knew that they were all children of God with the image of God inside of them. And I believe that that is how he calls us to see people as well. When we can learn to see the image of God in all people, then we won't hold grudges against others who make us angry or uncomfortable, because there is no room in a heart filled with Jesus for that kind of anger or that kind of bitterness. When we see the image of God in all people, we'll not think that we are better than anyone else because we'll know that we are not. When we can learn to see the image of God in other people, we will focus less on how we are different and more on how we are alike. The image of God in others is just like it is in us. And we must learn to see that just like Jesus did. We, as the church of Jesus Christ, as followers of Him, must make sure that we are His model in this world. And we are the model that Jesus expects us to be in a world that is desperately in need of people who really look like and live like and love like Jesus. I challenge us today as individuals and as the church to learn from Jesus let us stand up and be the generation as followers of Christ to say that that attitude of hatred and bitterness and superiority and bigotry ends with us. Let us use the same words that Brian Cranston did when he said, that stops now. Can we be the people that say that stops now? Can we be the followers of a better model And can we show a better model to this world? I believe that is what God has called us to do. Let us follow Jesus' model of love and acceptance and forgiveness to those who hurt us. Let us be sure that, that that is what we are showing in this world and that that is what we are teaching to those around us. We need to be sure that our actions honor and reflect the true teachings of Jesus. We need to guard our words when we're at our homes and in our businesses and on our baseball fields and out in public and make sure our words are words that show the worth of each individual because the image of God is in each one of them and God loves each one of them. Let us be that kind of people. Let us see the model of Jesus and live that in our lives. May we go forth as a model that Jesus was ha- would have us to be, seeing the image of God in one another and in all people. Amen.